The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this morning. Wall Street snaps a three-day winning streak as control of the U.S. Congress hangs in the balance and a crypto sell-off hurts sentiment. Issues beyond our control or ability to help. Binance backs out of a deal to rescue rival crypto exchange FTX, leaving Sam Bankman-Fried's empire on the verge of collapse. Control of the U.S. Senate boils down to three states, with Georgia set for a runoff election in December, whilst Nevada and Arizona go to the wire. President Biden looks for bipartisanship with the Republicans. Regardless of what the final tally in these elections show, and there's still some counting going on, I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. And Meta slashes its workforce by 13%, with more than 11,000 people affected, while CEO Mark Zuckerberg tells employees he takes full responsibility for the move. Morning, everybody. Lots going on in these markets. Lots of factors at every single level, which I think is actually making a really heady mix at the moment. You know, sometimes we can draw on the politics or the economics or the corporate earnings or the corporate action or, or something going on on geopolitical front for why the markets are having a bout of nerves. Well, I think, quite frankly, a confluence of events uh, have come to the fore in the last 24 hours, plus a bit of market movement before that, which I'll bring up at the end, uh, which has led to some hefty declines. Let's be honest about it. These were solid declines to the downside with the Dow down 646, the Nasdaq once again bearing the brunt down 263. Uh, And the headline goes to, well, it was indecisive midterms. And that was part of the reason why we saw this sell off as well. Uh, People thought we were going to get a red wave. And as such, that would make it very difficult for Biden to enact much more legislation. Plus, and we'll come to it in a moment, concern about crypto and whether there's a ripple effect there. Plus, we've got the data coming up today, which is without doubt, the key data of the week as well. The CPI number, and are we going to see both the headline and the core coming off a little bit? Then you've got the individual corporate actions, meta with those job losses. Never a good sign, is it, when you're cutting so aggressively, having been such a darling of the growth sector. And solid companies which are going to be around a very, very long time, like Disney as well underwhelming on the top and bottom line in the earnings as well. So a confluence of factors. But there is one more factor, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the fact that we did rally very hard three days coming into this for no real apparent reason. So guess what? After this mighty decline that we're all talking about, where are we? Yeah, we're back to exactly where we were on Monday. There you go. It's been a good trading opportunity for some. Should we have a look at the Treasuries? I think Adam's desperate to move on to that, so we do that. 4.07, no great oscillation on the 10-year ahead of that CPI data today. Uh, in terms of the key dollar crosses, let's draw out some uh, 
individuals there. Sterling trading in the middle of its recent 113.15 range, 114. The euro gaining uh, parity once again, dollar yen 146 and the dollar yuan 7.25 as we speak. Uh, Asian indices, they are under pressure today. We are seeing declines, but apart from the Hang Seng, which is down a couple of percent, nothing too extraordinary to the downside. Let's have a quick look at the cryptocurrencies. Again, Jeff and I have talked about cryptocurrencies and made our views very clear for a very long time. I will say it one more time to you. I don't take any glory about when it falling because I've had my skepticism about it, because the fact of the matter is, I haven't got a clue what the price of crypto should be. So many people there know, know clearly that it's going to 100,000, know clearly that it's going to naught. Well, he and I, we don't know what price is going to be. And we've said so for a long time. So for all of you trading this lovely momentum trade that has been crypto as well, I, I hope you're doing well in it as well, because we saw some very big declines uh, in the last couple of sessions this week as well. You may be going back to 64,000. I don't know, Jeff, but I think there's a few headwinds, though. And I think the fascinating thing is, what is the interconnectedness between the crypto markets at the moment and other markets that we keep a close eye on? And you were talking, I think, very interesting um, points that you were making at the wall about, you know, what the reasons may be for why the market is doing what the market is doing at the moment. But I wonder yesterday whether there was any evidence at all of people actually in a big losing crypto trade who are liquidating some other equity positions. And um, I had a, I had a that, dig though? around, had a dig around and um, tried to find some data on just whether the, there were likely to be investors yeah. who were in multiple asset classes. And I think the answer is probably yes. 320 million crypto users, according to uh, the research agency AAA, 320 million people then arguably having some exposure to crypto. Don't know where they get the numbers from, but interested that they, they feel they can put a figure on it. 13.74% um, of the total population of the United States apparently having some involvement with crypto. Now, those numbers seem incredibly large to me, but they are out there. And I just wonder, you know, whether there is some relationship between the fear that we now see in this particular market and its interconnectedness with other capital markets. But there's no correlation. This, I mean, if you own crypto, it's not an indictment on the US economy. It's not an indictment on the midterms. It's not an indictment on whether Disney's numbers beat or missed or whether companies that are in growth area that actually happen to have tricky growth strategy at the moment like Meta, whether they go up or down, it's completely uncorrelated. It's, it's, it's not exactly an asset class that has any bearing on any of the others. And the point about <coughs> were you selling down? Well, if you were in FTX, you couldn't sell down because you couldn't get out your position, I presume, yesterday, with withdrawals frozen as well. And surely if you were getting out of FTX or getting out of crypto, you'd be getting back into something else, would you? Or would you be going to cash? Why would you go to cash no, 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 the think, market falling? No, I think the point is that you can't sell these, right. so you're selling something else. In order to meet your you've margin calls. you've got to pay your mortgage. Right, or you've got to have living expenses. Well, then you and I or... are utter failures in life. Do you know why? Why? Because if you've got to sell your crypto to pay your mortgage, then nobody's listened to a blooming word we've said for three years. It could be that. It could be that. Let's let's talk about Binance. Binance then has walked away from its bailout of rival crypto exchange FTX, leaving it on the brink of collapse. Uh, in a tweet, Binance said FTX's liquidity issues were beyond the company's ability to help. This only a day after the business stepped in to help the Sam Bankman Freed-owned exchange amid a run on deposits which triggered the worst intraday performance 
for its flagship FTX fund. Now, Bankman-Fried was once known for bailing out troubled crypto companies, but new Reuters re reports suggest he resorted to financing his trading firm Alameda with customers' deposits. In a message seen by Reuters, the FTX chief apologized to staff and told them he's exploring all options. On Wednesday, he reportedly told investors the company needs up to $8 billion in funding to stay afloat amid the surge in customer withdrawals. It's not $8 billion of American dollars, is it? it? Surely it's $8 billion of crypto, because he doesn't believe in the old monetary system. Well, no, apparently not. But, <laughs> oh, it's um, real dollars then, is cl it? Clearly, the, oh, the, there is okay. an issue here. The crypto chief may have trouble finding backers amid reports FTX is under investigation by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, as well as the Department of Justice, over its ties with Alameda, that's according to Reuters, and the Wall Street Journal, which also reports that the SEC is probing Binance and Coinbase as well. How's that stable door looking? It's not looking great, is it, at the moment? Well and truly cantering down the so road. So do we... Oh. What are the chances of Binance mm. getting full regulatory clearance then, on the basis of this? That I couldn't give you an answer to. I mean, does anybody I mean, have so an answer to that the, question? So now what people want the CFTC and the SEC to mm. kind of say, oh, oh, we'll have some jurisdiction over this. I mean, it's the Wild West, these, these currency exchanges. It, 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 it absolutely is. We haven't got very far on the regulation, have we? Meanwhile, control of the U.S. Senate remains undecided with the Georgia Senate race heading for a runoff. Neither the Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock or his Republican challenger Herschel Walker have passed the necessary 50 percent threshold required under state law to win. The runoff will take place on December 6th. Meanwhile, votes in Nevada and Arizona are still being counted. If Democrats win both seats, they could retain control of the Senate without waiting for the results from Georgia. Control of the U.S. House of Representatives also hangs in the balance with NBC News unable to project which party will win yet. The Democrats have so far far exceeded, I think, their own expectations, let alone everyone else's, holding off the red wave that many Republicans were hoping for. House Minority Leader, so far as a minority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, spoke with President Biden on Wednesday night and announced he will run for Speaker of the House in anticipation of a Republican win. U.S. President Joe Biden has signaled he plans to run for re-election in 2024, but won't make a final decision until early next year. Speaking at the White House on Wednesday night, Mr. Biden celebrated the midterm results. Dealing with global inflation as a result of the pandemic and Putin's war in Ukraine, we're also handling it better than most other advanced nations in the world. We're lowering gas prices. We're looking, we're taking on powerful interest, uh, lower prescription drug costs and health insurance premiums and energy bills. After 20 months of hard work, the pandemic no longer controls our lives. It's still a concern, but no longer controls our lives. Our economic policies have created a record 10 million new jobs since I came into office. Unemployment rate is down from 6.4 when I was sworn in to 3.7 percent, near a 50-year low. And we've done all this while lowering the federal deficit in the two years by $1.7 trillion. Let's get out to uh, Dave Sequeira, Chief U.S. Market Strategist at Morningstar. He joins us this morning from Chicago. So, Dave, thanks very much for staying up for us this hour. Um, let me just get your initial uh, sense of how you feel the markets are reacting to this election result. 
Well, the markets are certainly reacting, but I think that they're probably overestimating the impact that the midterms will end up having at the end of the day, especially for people that have you know, a longer term perspective on investing like we do. So yeah, the outcome will certainly impact you know, the agenda and the spending priorities you know, for the next Congress. But I think those impacts will really be focused on those specific sectors that might be affected you know, by those spending priorities. To me, really, the greatest risk would be if the Democrats do retain control. Now, there is a chance we could see an increase in the corporate tax rate. But other than that, it's not what the type of thing that's really going to impact you know, our view for you know, the long-term economic outlook and for our inflation outlook. And based on the you know, composite of the stocks that we have under our coverage in the U.S., which is about 700 companies, we actually think the U.S. market is pretty pretty undervalued here, trading at about a 15 to 20% discount to fair value. In fact, after uh, today's action here in the US, you know, it's probably closer to that 20% discount. And I think that provides you know, enough margin of safety in this environment for investors today, albeit you know, I do see a lot more volatility in the months and couple of quarters to come. And Dave, just help us out. We were starting a conversation about whether there is any connection between the fear and panic we're now seeing in the crypto space and the pullback that we saw yesterday in the headline equity markets. Because as, as you point out, you know, there are reasons for markets not to do very much on the back of the outcome. And yet we saw a reasonable pullback across the day. Do you think there was any relationship between those who are now maybe locked in frozen positions uh, with cryptocurrencies and the fact that there may have been some selling in other asset classes? Well, I think, you know, just the swoon that we saw in cryptos across the board is certainly going to cause a negative sentiment. And I think we do see that, you know, impacting you know, all of the markets, you know, across the board. You know, having said that, it's always hard to ascribe you know, any one day's, you know, trading action to, you know, one individual catalyst. I always think that there's a lot of technicals going on, you know, underneath the scenes that can cause, you know, that daily movement. Now, we don't have, you know, a fundamental view on crypto in and of itself. Uh, the thing here that I'm actually watching and would be cautious about about is that when you have these kind of large movements, you know, this fast, uh, it's making me concerned whether there's maybe any contagion risk out there. You know, other situations where people have been using crypto, you know, as a, as collateral that you know they're now finding that they're you know under their margins and are just trying to find ways to be able to true themselves up. Um, Dave, I'm very interested in your comments about the market trading significantly, 20% plus. I think you said. Um, compared with its long-term fair value. If you look at the fair value and you strip out the dot-com bubble um, and then you strip out some of the other exuberant periods of the last 20 years, because there's been a couple in the age of zero money, actually we're trading above or similar levels to the long-term PE. So what is your measure for trading at massive discount to fair value? So we don't use PE ratios in our analysis. I actually do purely a bottoms-up analysis where we take the fair value as assigned for you know, each of those individual companies you know, that we model out. We do use a full discounted cash flow model. And so I think the market is probably just overestimating at this point you know, just how much of a you know, stagnant environment we're going to be for the economy and really still pricing in inflation you know, much longer than what we see. So at the beginning of the year, we actually noted, we thought coming into the year that you know, U.S. markets were overvalued. Uh, we had noted that there were four made headwinds that the market was going to have to contend with this year. 
And we're still contending with all four of those main headwinds. So we're looking at the Federal Reserve still tightening monetary policy, albeit maybe at a slightly slower rate over the next couple of months. But yeah, I think Chair Powell is quite clear that he thinks that you know interest rates need to be higher for longer really to fully eradicate inflation. Taking a look at the economy here, I think the outlook is still pretty murky. Uh, our U.S. economics team is forecasting you know, a coin flip, a 50-50 chance of whether or not we have a recession you know, for next year. And irrespective of whether or not we do have a technical recession, you know, they're still looking for next year's GDP here in the U.S. to come in well below 1%. Uh, inflation, yeah, we've been expecting that to moderate, but really has yet to really turn the corner. And I think with the markets, they're going to want to see evidence that inflation is coming down on a meaningful and sustained basis. And finally, you know, interest rates. You know, we thought interest rates were going to rise over the course of this year. Certainly, seeing you know the increase in both you know the short term and the long term rates. Now, we do think the preponderance of the interest rate increase is probably behind us at this point. But I do think in the short term, we'll still see momentum pushing rates higher. So all of that, I think we're going to be in a very volatile environment for you know next couple of months to you know maybe towards you know, end of first quarter or beginning of second quarter next year. Um, you say the market's going to wait for meaningful evidence, but I guess the short-term oscillation that we could see on the back of the CPI today means that they're not going to wait before putting the trigger um, for a long-term trend. They're going to just look on every minutiae. If we get a a dovish or a low-ish CPI today. Are we back off to the races on the markets? You know, it's going to certainly help sentiment. But again, going back to the last Fed meeting and listening to Chair Powell's you know, commentary in the uh, the press conference thereafter, you know, again, I think he was quite clear as far as what he's thinking. And I think that's going to you know, really impact just what the p- markets are going to be pricing in for the Fed for the next couple of months. And that's you know, higher interest rates and really trying to understand where interest rates are going to go to, what that terminal Fed funds rate is going to be you know, before we can start bringing it back down. Now, again, thinking through you know the second half of next year you know these four headwinds we think a lot of them will start to abate by then so we do think that you know with the economy being relatively sluggish you now that actually could give the federal reserve you know the room it would need you know not only to stop you know making monetary policy more tight but actually you know switching gears next year in the second half of the year and starting to loosen monetary policy you know, inflation, you know, as oil prices, you know, start coming back down, you know, over the second half of next year, certainly going to help inflation, you know, as well. And if we see interest rates, you know, stabilize and start coming down, I think that's what the market's going to need in order to see kind of that, you know, meaningful base where we can really start seeing, you know, markets move back up to what we think the fair value is. Very interesting speaking to you today, Dave. Thank you so much indeed for your time and joining us from Chicago. Dave Sakara, who is Chief U.S. Market Strategist at Morningstar. Coming up on this show, uh, Wiener Burger CEO Heimo Scheuch joins us after the Austrian brick and building suppliers maker hiked its full-year profit guidance. Plus the podcast, Mr. Carl. Yeah, I'm, I'm told it's vintage. Uh, <laughs> make a point of catching up with the uh, podcast where we cover the midterms and the meltdown in crypto. Uh, get that where you get all good podcasts. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
right, Wienerberger has revised its full-year profit guidance higher after revenues grew by a third in the first nine months of the year to 3.85 billion euros. The Austrian brickmaker says it expects to continue to grow next year. Heimo Scheuch, of course, is the CEO of Wienerberger and joins us now. Heimo, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining Jeff and myself this morning. So look, um, challenges of not getting enough supply and now challenges about concern about demand, I guess, in Europe as well. Just uh, just paint a picture for us, Heimo. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the morning show. And uh, there's challenges, as you say, once there's in there's challenges from elections, there's challenges from inflation, there's challenges from all sorts of things, from energy supply. I think we've lived through a very turbulent year, year 2022. But as you have seen, we as Wienerberger have pretty, done pretty well. We have a record uh, uh, result um, after the third quarter. We have given an upgraded guidance to 950, 970 EBTR million. So a strong performance this year. And I do see that the markets, obviously, when you look at the, our end markets, new residential housing is uh, declining, slightly declining, has started in Eastern Europe, by the way, and is now progressing uh, towards also Western Europe and the United States. I would say that we see about 10% uh, sort of decrease on the group level when we talk about end markets. But you see also that Wienerberger is doing pretty well with our new solutions and new products in these markets. On the renovation side, pretty stable throughout all of our markets and infrastructure. You know, we are now not only a brick maker, but a leading provider of water solutions around Europe and North America. And here we see also a slight decline in activity on our end markets, about 5%. But again, I think the strong portfolio, focus on innovation and cost control has contributed largely to this uh, very strong set of results. I, I note your caution and the challenges. Is Europe going into a recession? Well, I think technically speaking, when we look at what the definition of a recession is uh, with two consecutive quarters of declines, yes, the answer is yes. However, I would say, you know, we shouldn't be that pessimistic because obviously we have seen uh, a strong performance in the uh, building sector over uh, the COVID period and after the COVID period. It's a technical correction. The only thing which is actually of concern and which we have to look very closely are the interest rates because we see pretty high interest rates in Eastern Europe, above 8 and 9%, uh, increasing in North America, obviously, and also now in the EU, in the, in the core sector, and obviously also in the UK. So this is a major concern. Otherwise, on the pent-up demand, the demand in the market itself, I don't see a major issue. Heimer, can we just centre on the energy question for a second here? Because I, I think back in March, you were quoted as describing EU policies on energy as chaotic. We still don't have the so-called price cap on gas that's been talked about endlessly at EU-level meetings. Um, it, it seems that for you, a, a, a company that requires energy to, to complete and finish its product, it's very important that you secure sources through the rest of next year. How is that going? And do you still feel that the EU energy policy approach is chaotic? Well, I, chaotic, I think it's a, it's an approach that takes time. Politically speaking, you know that a lot of the countries have come, come together and the ministers and the head of states have to find solutions. However, I do not see yet a common real energy policy. Energy policy for me consists first 
of energy resources. And here we need to move away from fossil resources in Europe to more sustainable ones. That's the first step. The second one is the infrastructure in Europe. Obviously, you need to build also the necessary infrastructure. And this is a European approach that needs to happen, especially for industry. And you're absolutely right when you say we need a long-term perspective. We invest for 20, 30 years. So this is something where we still lack a common European policy. However, when we talk about Wienerberg, as you have correctly pointed out, we have 240 sites, and so we have to operate uh, in, a, in a very unstable environment. Again, we have made all mitigation plans for every and any site in our company so that we ensure the energy supply to those sites and that we can run them safely through also 2023. Uh, and obviously you've raised guidance here and you are beating consensus and you have talked about growth next year. You, you ran a share buyback program, I think, up until the end of September. What's the attitude at board level at the moment on returning further cash to shareholders, either through dividend or through further share buyback? We've always been very keen to return uh, capital to the shareholders, either by dividend or share buyback, as you correctly pointed out. And we've bought back 7% of Wienerberger in recent times. But I think also when you know when you are in such uh, environments as we, we currently have, you have opportunity also, also to grow. And I think Wienerberger will certainly focus on further growth to foster our sort of exposure to the renovation market and to the water management uh, market, because I think these are two growing elements for Wienerberg. And you see that we nearly approach now about 5 billion turnover for the company. So we've seen strong growth and we want to pursue that. And crisis is always a unique opportunity for us. That's one step. And the second one is the transition towards more energy, uh, sustainable energy resources. And I think here, technology-wise, we have a good set of potential uh, breakthroughs coming. And here, obviously, the next years will show also the investment in these areas to improve our technology and to make us carbon neutral also by much earlier than 2040. Hi, Mo. I know it's a very presumptuous and longer-term longer question, but... Has anyone started talking about the rebuilding of Ukraine yet after the damage wrought by the Russian invasion? Uh, is it too early to start talking about how you and the other construction companies in Europe will be involved in the rebuilding of Ukraine? No, it's not too early. And by the way, actually, from Poland and from uh, especially Romania and Hungary, we deliver already into the western parts of Ukraine. And uh, we are also talking with people on the ground how we can uh, uh, create affordable housing. And obviously, with some NGOs and others, we are in close contact for that. So I think already we are on the ground. We have obviously a lot of uh, colleagues from Ukraine working for us. So we are very close, culturally speaking, uh, to these areas of the world. And I think this is certainly an area where we have to focus. Keep in mind that, unfortunately, due to this ugly war, a lot of things have been destruct, uh, uh, destroyed. And we need, obviously, to rebuild the country. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.